All right, so now would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The reading for today is John 13, 1 through 11. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Andrea. So I uh, also, I'm so out of practice, especially on the hosting duties, I forgot to tell you that we are Redemption Church. We are one church with 10 congregations in Arizona. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We're the Arcadia flavor of the 10 uh, churches, and my name is Frank. If you're new, we're glad you're here. My name is Frank. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. We have a great staff here, like I mentioned, four of us uh, full-time pastors, and that would be Tyler and Tyler. We have two Tylers and Trey. So uh, if you're new, we'd love to get to know you in some way, shape, or form, and you can also go to the Connect desk and talk to Andrea, who was just up here reading scripture, and she can help you get um, connected. Really love for you to have Bibles open, uh, whether they're old school Bibles like this, or an app on your phone, open them to John chapter 13. It's so important to be able to follow along. Um, I, I heard this again just this last week. Uh, just because a guy's got a mic and is standing in the front of a church on a Sunday doesn't mean you should trust him uh, implicitly. You need to have the, the word of God in front of you to make sure that what he's doing honors the intention of the author, but also uh, the intention of the application for our lives as well. So please have your Bibles open. We're working our way through the book of John. We had that nine-week break for Nehemiah, which was great, but now we're back at it. And last week, Trey took us through the last 14 verses of chapter 12, and it was some really heavy stuff uh, that also sets us up for today's passage. Uh, both Jesus and John last week explain deeply and conclusively, there's no wiggle room here, that some are going to believe in the gospel and others just aren't. And in fact, there is a sense in which some who don't believe are actually allowing for 
the, salva the salvation process to take place in others. And we'll see that again uh, today. And that's one of the reasons why this sets us up for today, because Jesus talks, and a little bit cryptically in this passage, he, he talks about Judas, who does not believe, even in the midst of a dinner where most everybody else who is attending does believe in him, although their belief in him is a little bit shaky, but after the resurrection becomes much uh, stronger. And so here's a preview of some of what we'll see today, three things. We're going to see the famous foot washing event, uh, Jesus again showing his humility and servanthood, even though he has all power and all position. He uses that humbly for serving others and uses that as an example to others as well. Uh, second of all, the ancillary teaching that comes from the foot washing scene, which part of that ancillary teaching is this whole issue with Judas. We're going to spend a couple of weeks, actually, um, we have to spend a couple of weeks talking about Judas. This is going to come up again. And then lastly, there's a, a call to believe the gospel. The gospel of John is all about this one word, believe, believe. Um, it's the Greek word that can also be translated as faith or trust. But um, belief in Jesus is the whole reason why John wrote this gospel. And so we see calls constantly throughout this gospel uh, for us to believe in Jesus. And today starts also a long uh, thread of messages that all occur on, on this last night before Jesus is betrayed and crucified. So everything in, in chapters uh, 13 through 17, five chapters, all occur on the same night, the night before Jesus uh, goes to the cross. And today we're going to go through verse 20, even though the reading was just to verse 11. So let me reread the first five verses again, and we'll unpack those. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, uh, this language of it's not yet my time, it's not yet my hour has now uh, transitioned into it is my time, it is my hour, and I know that my hour has come. Jesus is all in on the plan of our salvation, which includes him going to the cross, the, the humility and the agony of the cross. So to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back from God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 1, having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. What exactly is John trying to get at there? What does that mean? I'm not 100% sure why translators do this, but the Greek is actually better translated. He loved them completely. To the end is translating the word telos, which means goal or purpose. And so uh, it, it means that um, the purpose of his love has been completed and will be realized. This is an important moment. His time had come. And it does mean in the strictest sense that Jesus will never stop loving his people. That's true, but it's even more than that. It's, it means that Jesus' love is thorough and fulfilling always. That, that sense of emptiness that all of us have, we're looking for fulfillment, this is where we find it, is in Jesus. And, and that's the point, because his love is that deep. 
And the depth of his love knows no bounds, including his willingness to be crucified for us. He knows what's getting ready to happen. And in verse 2, John wants to make sure that the reader understands that the betrayal of Judas does not take Jesus by surprise. Takes everybody else by surprise, but not Jesus. And in fact, the betrayal by Judas was actually part of the plan of salvation. You heard Trey last week talk about how the unbelief of the Jews were part of the messianic plan of salvation for Jesus. And now we see that even this, uh, this thing that Judas is going to do is part of the plan of salvation. And further, we're told in verse 3 that uh, Jesus' father had given all of this into Jesus' hands and that Jesus had purposed to return to his father. So, so we need to understand that Jesus had to be betrayed to get him to the cross for our forgiveness and salvation and for him to be returned to his father. I was reminded this week watching a video that Monty Williams, the Phoenix Suns. I know some of you are like, you're actually going to bring up the Phoenix Suns? I, anyway, the, the, the coach of the Phoenix Suns um, has often said, good is usually on the other side of hard. Good is usually on the other side of hard. That's exactly what happened with the crucifixion. Sounds like Monty Williams is a Christian. Anyway, and it was Satan who actually put this in Judas's heart. We find in the gospel records that antagonism between Satan and Jesus was not unusual. And so we need to understand, and Jesus tells us this, of course, that if Satan is going to antagonize Jesus, he's going to antagonize us as well. So a couple things to consider here. Is there anything that Satan might be putting in our hearts today? Is there anything that Satan might be, be antagonizing us with today? I hate to be so awkward as to ask that question, but sometimes rigorous and dark self-assessment is necessary to get at the root of our issues. And then here's the second thing, and I think this is really big. Practically speaking, here's what we also know about Judas, and listen up to this. This is really important. Judas had already decided, we saw this, we saw this kind of run-up in the previous chapters, even in chapter 12, Judas had already decided that Jesus was going to lose in a worldly way. That, that the professional religious people were eventually going to prevail. They were going to get their way. They were going to be able to execute Jesus. He knew that the perps, professional religious people, were eventually going to win. And ultimately, Jesus would be stopped in a manner of speaking. Judas didn't feel like betting against the cultural momentum. Judas didn't feel like betting against the cultural momentum. Now that should lay heavy on us because that is a constant temptation for us. To see the cultural momentum and decide it's just easier to go with that, even though it's wrong. Okay? See, Judas didn't want to be with the losers. Here you go. Here's another way we hear this said all the time. Judas didn't want to be on the wrong side of history. Judas was sure that he would be on the right side of history if he betrayed Jesus. And even further, that he would be a hero and an influencer and that he would receive approval and affirmation from all who heard of his bold actions. Don't let this mistake of Judas's be lost 
on our desire for affirmation and approval from this world. And again, this is something that is just reiterated here because Trey talked about this last week at the end of chapter 12 when it said that many of the professional religious Jewish people did believe in Jesus, but they refused to go public with it because they were afraid of what other human beings might say. I am a Christian. I, I do believe in Jesus, but I'm certainly not going to tell anybody because, you know, they can get really weirded out by that. Or, like the professional religious people of their time, I could lose my position and status and power. And we run into that same challenge even today. Don't make this mistake. And then verses 4 and 5. By removing his outer garments, as a servant would commonly do before menial labor, Jesus is signaling his intentions to the disciples. And, and I just can only imagine that they must have been watching with curiosity and amazement and perhaps even a bit of embarrassment. It's kind of awkward. Because this never happens. This sort of thing. So here's the significance of the foot washing scenario. Um, you have the combination, they, they had no asphalt back then, and so they had nothing but dusty roads. You, you could take a bath, and the minute you walked out of your house into the dusty roads, your feet would get filthy, because also the only type of footwear they had was, uh, were sandals, okay? Nobody's, Nike hadn't been invented yet, so nobody's wearing athletic shoes or closed up shoes, so I'll wear your sandals. So, 10 minutes out in the roads, even though the rest of you was clean, 10 minutes out in the road, uh, would render your feet absolutely uh, disgusting. And so foot washing in their culture was necessary before going into a, inside to a meal at a table and reclining at the table. And this job of foot washing was always reserved for the not just a servant, but the lowest of the servants. So they would have a hierarchy of servants. Yeah, I'm a servant, but I'm the head servant. But this is always the last hired servant, the last one there. It was always reserved for, it was the worst job anybody could have, cleaning any, anybody else's feet. But Jesus does it. And because this meal was to be in secret, there was no host or servants in the house to make sure that their feet got washed. But every house always had a basin and a rag ready for these foot washings because it was really important in their culture. So Jesus gets up to do it. The disciples wouldn't do it. There wasn't a single disciple who walked in, saw that there were no servants, and said, I'll, I'll take care of the foot washing. None of them did because that was beneath the disciples. They're part of a rabbi's yoke. They're, they're important religious people. They don't have to clean anybody's feet. So they all just started to recline around the table with dirty feet. So Jesus says, all right. I'm going to do it. So now their Lord, their master, their rabbi is doing This had to be a little bit awkward. So look at verses 6 through, uh, 6 through 11. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Simon Peter then said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was to betray him. 
And that was why he said, not every one of you are clean. So, a little side note here. Um, Peter is quite the flip-flopper before the resurrection, right? It's like he has no direction. He just kind of goes with the wind, whatever is prevailing at the time. But man, after the resurrection, that guy was just foundational. He was rooted. After the resurrection, he was a pillar of courage and steadfastness. So look at verse 8. Jesus says, you know, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no share with me. What Jesus is saying is that um, unless you allow me to sacrifice for you, if you, unless you allow me to be your substitutionary atonement, your salvation, you can't be saved. You know, it's funny. People re refuse the love and service of others all the time. Maybe you've experienced this. I've experienced this a little bit. Um, people refuse love and so we're called to love and serve and then we go out and try to love and serve and it's amazing how many people would just refuse it they think we're weird you know but mostly it's a pride issue because people hate to appear weak we hate to appear like we need help we also don't like frankly the messiness of someone serving us because then we might have to start a relationship with them feel like we owe them something and that's a lot of hard work well, Peter was a proud, do-it-yourself, pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-sandal-straps kind of guy. And he certainly did not want to appear needy in front of the other disciples. That's pride getting in the way. You know, many times people will do foot-washing services. Have you ever been to a foot-washing service? Anybody? Yeah. Many times people will do foot-washing services as a way of showing others Although they may be in a position of power and authority and status, they want to be servants to their constituency. I was there when um, Gil Stafford was, years ago, was installed as the president of Grand Canyon University. And during that installation service, he had um, 10 different students up there from Grand Canyon, and he washed their feet as part of the, as part of the service. But I'll tell you, it's not always easy to do, and it's not always received very well. As some of you know, pre-COVID, uh, Redemption Arcadia very often on Saturday night would go down to one of the units at Florence Prison, and we would do an entire worship service. Uh, we would take all the musical equipment. We'd take people who, I think I see Malia sitting, and Malia, you've been down there many times. We go in there put on a, a full service with live music, and then we'd preach, uh, do, do a whole uh, service. And one of those times, I decided I'm going to do a foot washing service for the prisoners in the north unit at Florence. So when it came to that moment, it was really weird because virtually every prisoner in there was reluctant to do it. They were sold out for Jesus, singing, raising their hands. When I'd preach, they would yell back at me, good things. It was really awesome. <laughs> and then they just seemed embarrassed or too proud. Maybe it's a prison thing. They don't want to show that sort of vulnerability in front of other prisoners. I don't know. But I, it was like pulling teeth to get three guys out of 100 to come forward and have their feet washed. If you've seen um, one of our backstories that we just recently put on our YouTube channel, we just recorded it. We didn't do it publicly. Um, but I spent um, 
probably 90 minutes interviewing another pastor in our area, a guy named Luke Parker, who is pastor of the Spring Midtown. And uh, we're good friends, and, and just uh, I thought it would be good for people in our congregation to get to know him, and so I interviewed him. And, and there's one story that he tells. I make him tell this story every time I'm with somebody else who hasn't heard the story, about how he went out one day in his neighborhood. He was kind of off, and he's, he's like, I'm, I'm just going to go and try to love people, walk around my neighborhood and see what happens. And there was a guy in front of his house shoveling rocks. He was putting in rocks in his whole front yard. And he was shoveling rocks, and it was hot and hard work, and there was an extra shovel there. And Luke walked up and said, hey, can I help you shovel the rocks? I'd be glad. I got nothing to do. I'd be help, happy to help you shovel the rocks. And the guy looked at him and just went, no. And he says, listen, no kidding. I'm, I don't want to be paid. I'm not looking for a meal. Nothing like that. I just want to help. I want to serve you. I want to help you. I want to love you as my neighbor. And the guy goes, no. And that was the end of it. Okay, Loving your neighbor is not as easy as it necessarily sounds. But we need to be persistent. We need to hang in there. Uh, maybe it would help us with our reticence for rejection. You know, maybe if we get rejected enough, we can get used to it, and then we can do what we're called to all the time. So two things to consider about this. Number one, pride is definitely a problem. Our pride is definitely a problem. Uh, pride is everyone's besetting sin. Tom Schrader used to say that every other week. If you're looking for your besetting sin, my besetting sin, it's pride. C.S. Lewis writes that pride is the one sin through which all other sin is filtered through. Lewis also reminds us that pride was the reason Lucifer was cast out of heaven and became Satan. Pride was the sin that snared Adam and Eve in the garden. We need to reckon with our pride. And second of all, we need to understand that no matter how much power, money, status, smarts, or juice that we have in this world, eventually we're going to be in a situation where none of those things can help us. We will. Everyone eventually falls to their knees. The only question is this. Are you going to fall to your knees before Jesus and embrace him? Or are you going to fall to your knees in despair and anger because all of your worldly prowess can't help you now? Also notice that Jesus washes even Judas' feet. He washes the feet of his enemies. And I confess, I have a little bit of trouble with this, just as I imagine some of you do, because we've all been betrayed. Anybody in this room who hasn't been betrayed, that would be an interesting conversation to have. Pretty sure we've all been betrayed in some way. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we're still called to love our enemies. And verse 10, there's some of this cryptic language that I mentioned in the beginning. In their culture, you can bathe your whole body, but after just a few minutes, as I said, walking around in the streets, your feet would need to be washed again. But the rest of your body is fine. Your feet are disgusting, though. In other words, metaphorically speaking, you and I can clean ourselves up morally all we want. We can be do-gooders and good persons. But we still need to be forgiven our sins by the only one who can forgive them, and that's Jesus. So, metaphorically, all of us need our feet washed by Jesus in order to receive forgiveness. We have to allow Jesus to do that. And literally, we need to believe in Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection 
to be forgiven and saved. That's the call of the gospel. And that is no matter how moral we are or how much of a good person we think we are. In verse 11, of course, not everyone is even close to clean no matter what they do. The reference here is to Judas. Jesus is God, and so he knows all the plots and the schemes that are going on around him. I've often wondered at times, and this seems like it would be in Jesus' character, what if Jesus had simply walked up to Judas, like before the dinner even took place, if he had just kind of pulled him aside as everybody was coming into the house, and, and he said to Judas, hey, hey man, don't do this. What are you thinking? Don't do this. I'm just imagining a scenario. Wondering what Judas might have said in that moment. Might have been a bit awkward, but interesting. But again, understand, this is part of the purpose and plan of salvation. There had to be a betrayal. God the Father had purposed this for our salvation, and Jesus knew this all along. No betrayal, no salvation. Look at the next four verses, 12 through 15. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also wash one another's feet. For I have an example that you, should, you also should do just as I have done to you. It's clear that Jesus wants to make sure that they actually understand what has happened and now what to do with it. This wasn't just an event and now we're done with that, we're going to go on. He was teaching in the midst of this event. And in verse 14, Jesus teaches here that true power and authority is using it to serve. True power and authority is using it to serve others. But this was unheard of in their culture. Completely unheard of in their culture. Someone of Jesus' stature and authority, washing feet, serving others. He's a rabbi. You're not supposed to do things like that. You're just supposed to stand around and act pious. That's it. That's essentially your job. I'll tell you, this notion is probably not too common in our culture either. In their context, rabbis, other than Jesus, rabbis valued supremely social rank. One of the reasons was because they were on the top of the social rank, so they valued it. But they would never do something like wash their disciples' feet. And foot washing was so loathsome that most disciples would cringe at washing their rabbi's feet. They wouldn't even wash their rabbi's feet because that was for servants only. And yet, their master washed their feet. Their rabbi washed their feet. So Jesus is saying, y'all better humble it up, boys. And start serving each other, and not just serving each other, but you need to start serving everyone. This is countercultural, revolutionary in their time. So a rabbi would have a yoke, that's what it was called. A yoke was all of his disciples who made the grade, who made the cut. Notice Jesus' yoke was, was filled with all these guys who didn't make the cut for any other rabbi. So you know, people say, hey, he had a ragtag group of disciples. That's true. He had, a, he had a bunch of rejects from all the other rabbis' yokes. That's why they were so excited to follow Jesus, because they were getting a second chance to be a part of 
that, you know, being on top of the organizational structure of, of their world, I get to be a part of a rabbi's yoke. I'm going to have power, status, and authority. Okay? The problem here is that Jesus is a different kind of rabbi because he's saying, you're not going to spend your time like all these other rabbi yokes virtue signaling and showing how pious you are. I want you to spend your time loving and serving others. It's going to be a little bit more costly. But Jesus has every right to call that cost out of us because he he paid the greatest cost of all by going to to the cross. He has every right to call that out of his followers, out of his disciples. We've explained this many times. Humility in their culture, in Jesus' culture, in Paul the Apostle's culture, humility was not thought of as a virtue or a strength, but rather as a vice and as weakness, just like today. There's nothing new under the sun. And to do this and to teach this, especially by the Messiah, is noteworthy. And then the last five verses, 16 through 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. So that word chosen in there. Here, that word chosen specifically applies not necessarily to salvation. In other places in the Bible, yes, but not here. It applies to those who were chosen to be a part of Jesus' yoke. And Jesus says this to assure us that he knew from the beginning that he was choosing his betrayer and that choosing his betrayer, Judas, was part of his purpose and plan. And this is also the answer to my question earlier about why Jesus didn't just say to Judas, hey man, don't do this. It's because this is part of the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah that lifted up his heel and eating bread saying... References Psalm 140, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 41 9, which is where David laments the fact that his son Absalom had betrayed him. But this also goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where God explains after the original sin that one of the curses is that Satan is going to bruise the heel of the Messiah and the Messiah is going to bruise Satan's head. Now that's ancient Hebrew coded language for the Messiah is going to be wounded, but Satan, the adversary, is going to be utterly destroyed. Paul references that even in Romans chapter 16. God's son will be wounded, but God's son, the Messiah, will utterly destroy Satan through the cross and resurrection. And then verse 19, you know, this happened to a lot of these guys. They saw, they saw this as real once Jesus was resurrected. And again, consider the pre-resurrection Peter and then the post-resurrection Peter. Two completely different people. 
Verse 20, there's yet another call to believe. The one I send means anyone who comes bearing the good news, the gospel of Jesus. It's our call to receive the one who sent, receive the message, and therefore receive Jesus and receive salvation to believe. I want to end this way. It's interesting. Judas and Jesus are playing a game, but they're actually playing two different games. And I didn't really fully understand this until this last week. So how many of you know who Simon Sinek is? Okay, he's a leadership, corporate leadership and management guru. He's, uh, how many of you have seen his TED Talk, Start With Why? Okay, you know that TED Talk, excellent TED Talk. He's all over YouTube. He's, he's funny, but he's smart, and he's got some good ideas. Not a Christian, does not write Christian books. He writes books about leadership and corporate management, things like that. And I've read a couple of books uh, of his, and the most recent one that I read of his, I just finished, it's called The Infinite Game. And he talks about how there are two kinds of games that we play in this world. There's the finite game and the infinite game. And a, a finite game is, is much more defined. A finite game has rules, and it has uh, a way to keep track and keep score. Um, it has uniforms. It has uh, time, um, time limits, and then at the end, there's, there's a winner that's declared and a loser, and that's the end of it. You go home, unless you're angry with each other and you start a fight. But then that's the end of the game, and you go home. That's like a finite game. And then he says the infinite game is different. The infinite game has a different set of rules or sometimes no rules at all. The rules are constantly changing and rolling. Uh, the goal of the finite game is to win the game. The goal of the infinite game is to just stay in the game. Just stay in the game. You're winning by just staying in the game. And he uses something that I lived through, so it resonated with me as an example of this. He said, you know, America was involved in the Vietnam War for about 15 years. And consider these statistics. Consider these scorekeeping mechanisms. North Vietnam lost 3 million soldiers during the Vietnam conflict. Interesting that we call it a conflict. It was a war. North Vietnam lost 3 million. The United States lost 58,000. The United States won more than, decisively more than 80% of the battles. Yet who evacuated? Are you getting the weight of this? The North Koreans had an infinite mindset. The Americans, unfortunately, had a finite mindset. And ultimately, it was to our demise. And so I, I started to think about this. Now, he's not a Christian, so he's not putting it into the context of church or Christianity, but I had the tendency to take everything and put it into that context. I started to think about this, and I started comparing church world or gospel world to the rest of the world. And I began to realize, you know, nations come to an end. Right? Cultures come to an end. This will disappoint some of you. Political parties come to an end. All sorts of stuff in the world comes to an end. But now think about church world. Think about the gospel world. Jesus never comes to an end. God's word 
never comes to an end. God's people never comes to an end. The church never comes to an end. There's going to be a transition for the church once the new Jerusalem comes, but it never comes to an end. The church has to play a finite game in a world where everybody is pretty much driven towards a finite game. We need to play an infinite game. We have to play an infinite game because that's what we are. That's our purpose. And then I began to realize, look at what Jesus is doing. He's willing to go to the cross because he's playing an infinite game and he knows it doesn't end there. And I started thinking about the crucifixion of Jesus. He's up on the cross. And we have it recorded in the Gospels that people were walking by him, mocking him, pointing at him, spitting on him. The professional religious Jewish people were standing there saying, ha ha, we win. They were playing a finite game. Judas was playing a finite game. He got his 30 pieces of silver. He was playing a finite game. He thought that the, the professional Jewish people were going to win. And at one point, they all thought they had won. But Jesus is standing on the cross hanging on the cross, looking at everybody going, I'm playing a completely different game than you are. And in three days, you're going to realize that this game is never going to end. And you have a decision to make. We all have a decision to make. When it comes to Jesus, are we in on the infinite? Or are we going to try to define him with finite terms? Are we going to try to define our own salvation with finite terms? Can't be done. That's the beauty and the joy and the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus. He's in it forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you that you recorded all of this for us so that we might know who you are, the infinite one, the eternal one. God, help us to understand our need for you. I pray that somehow we would look at your word, look at what Jesus teaches us, and we would understand it in our context and begin to apply it to our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as the band begins to play and we prepare for the Lord's Supper, and our two songs that we're going to close this service with. I, again, I would just want to slow things down. Contemplating the reality of the gospel in Jesus is not something we should do with haste. It's not something that we should run through or race through. And... and and beyond that, contemplating what we're about to do, coming to his table, is not something that we should take lightly, that should be a routine, even though we do it every week. It's something that we should feel the weight of. This dinner where Jesus was cleaning their feet, when he washed their feet, this is actually the Passover meal. 
And the other Gospels record that during this Passover meal, Jesus changed the meal. And He changed it by taking the bread and He broke it and He said, this is My body which is for you. His body is going to be broken on that cross. He says, do this in remembrance of Me. And after they had eaten, He took the cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. Again, referencing the cross where His blood was poured out for us. Poured out so that we could be forgiven of our sin and we could be reconciled to God. That we could walk in redemption, walk in eternity, walk in the infinite game. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Paul later tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. And that's what we're about here at Redemption Church. We're going to proclaim Jesus and proclaim his gospel until he comes again. We're in an infinite game here. So as we do that, we have the kits up here, up front. You'll come into the middle aisle and come down here and split off, grab your kit. Uh, do it prayerfully, reverently. Do it as you feel led by the Holy Spirit. And then once you're done, if you feel so led and so inclined, you can stand and, and join in with the singing and the songs that we're going to close this service with. So let's go ahead and do that right now.
Amen. God, we do cry holy as one body, one faith, one baptism. We lift up one voice to say you are holy. God, we praise you this morning. We thank you for being here by the power of your spirit and through the deliverance of your word. As we took communion together, God, as we lifted our voices together, all the various things that you've done together with us this morning and through us and in us this morning, we give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for being together to worship this morning. I want to give us our benediction. This comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.